Hello, and welcome to Desire to Destiny, a podcast where we explore the mystery behind our deepest desires and how they can make us happier human beings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Larson, but please just call me doctor. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can find those posted in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get any of our future episodes. Let's get started with a little fill-in-the-blank exercise. I'll give you an introduction. You see how you would finish it. Hi, my name is Mike, and I'm a... Did you finish the sentence? What did you finish it with? An addict? An alcoholic? Some other holic? Today, over 23 million Americans are in active recovery, and many of them use some form of this introduction to self-identify in the anonymous groups that they're a part of, whether it's alcoholics or narcotics anonymous or overeaters or sex and love or on and on and on. Now, personally, I've got 39 years sober from alcohol use and over two decades sober from marijuana. The first number is because I've never actually had a drop of alcohol of any kind in my life. And the second one is because I experimented a little bit in high school and yes, I did inhale. But this personal history does not in any way qualify me as an alcoholic or an addict. And this means on the many occasions where I've attended AA and NA groups as a part of my work with addicted teens, I must sit quietly and bear witness to the stories of those who have come to share. If I do speak at all, it would be merely to introduce myself and explain my presence in the group. And I've been taught that the proper way for me to introduce myself is to say something like this. Hi, my name is Mike, and I'm a normie. This is a way of saying I haven't abused the substance of choice for that group, therefore I am a normal person. I'm not an alcoholic or an addict like the rest of the people in the room. And I have to say, I hate that introduction. I know how important these anonymous groups have been to the recovery of millions of people, I've heard the incredible tales, I've been inspired, I've been moved to tears by the stories that I've heard, but after listening long enough to their stories, and after reading the growing research on the nature of addiction, I've become convinced that this introduction is misleading on many accounts. It's misleading about who addicts are, it's misleading about what normal is, and it's misleading about the way desire actually works in each one of us. Every human being, not just an addict, is motivated by their desires. And with each of us, it's our brain that helps us identify the activities and behaviors that are likely to make us feel good and bring us happiness and meaning to our lives. When it functions well, the different chemical reactions in our brain make it easier for us to repeat the same behaviors over and over again, a kind of a feedback loop that works through our brain so that we can engage in things that have meaning to us. And this is true whether the behavior is playing an instrument or if it's going for a run or choosing a salad for dinner instead of lasagna because we want to be healthier. It's also what happens in an addict's brain when they crack open another beer or inject a needle or pop a pill. In reality, Each of these behaviors is the outcome of a normally functioning brain. What makes the difference with addiction is how extreme it becomes. Addictive behaviors are repeated obsessively 
bringing less and less and less satisfaction with every turn around and bringing greater consequences and the loss of importance of any competing goals. Addiction becomes the only thing which the brain can focus on. And even though it's intended to move us in the direction of those goals, to be motivated by desires and help us find the things that we long for, addiction hijacks that process by saying there's only one thing that is important. Now, when I think of addiction, one story that comes to mind for me is from the biblical book of Genesis, right before the catastrophic flood described in chapter 6. There are many ancient stories like this one about a flood that wiped out all of mankind and the reasons for this flood. Um, One of the main reasons that comes up is that the gods get basically annoyed by humanity and decide that they just want to silence them and get rid of them. Um, And then a hero comes along. Um, One popular hero is by the name of Gilgamesh, and he rescues himself and others to preserve life on Earth. But you're probably more familiar with the hero by the name of Noah. In any case, before Noah actually comes into the story, before he builds the ark and saves his family, and before there became movies based off of him, including Noah and Evan Almighty, um, the story actually begins with God lamenting the condition of the human heart. He looks down at the way they're treating one another, at the way they're treating the planet, at the way they're just responding to this gift of life that's been given them. And he looks and sees something that distresses him deeply. The scripture reads it this way, The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen to that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It goes down layer upon layer upon layer to how dark and sinister the heart of man had become. And if you ask me, that obsessive, destructive, depraved condition is a good way of describing addiction. I don't mean this with the intent of demonizing the addict. I'm not speaking about the person whose life has been hijacked by addiction. Rather, I'm describing the heart of addiction this way. It identifies the way the beast that is addiction attacks its host and takes over and just has this hell-bent direction towards that which will destroy. You see, with addiction, the brain becomes hyper-fixated on that single goal. And it does this to meet a variety of needs, um, where initially the drug use might have been so that somebody could feel less anxious when they're in a social engagement or have focus to get work done. In time, they start to sacrifice all these other goals for that single need. And the one thing that they used to remove anxiety or to help them feel more relaxed or whatever the case might have been to drown out past sorrows now becomes the only thing that drives them. And it draws them back again and again and again. And when a person gets stuck in this cycle, there must be a learning process in which the person finally realizes this habit is not going to give me what I want. It is not making me happy. It is not doing what it promised it would do. You might know this as the proverbial rock bottom. Now, while it was natural brain functioning that led to this, it was that desire moves us towards a goal and then gives a feedback loop that helps us repeat a behavior over and over to attain that goal. 
when you get to this point of realizing that the, the brain had been hijacked in the wrong direction, there becomes a need for extensive rebuilding of the structure for the addict to climb out of rock bottom. Because as Mark Lewis, author of Biology of Desire, points out, once addiction becomes the main act, our inadequate resources for self-regulation have to tackle the most challenging negative emotion, craving, that irresistible longing that when desire has taken over in that form of, I have to have it, I have to have it. He goes on to say, this is generated by the addiction itself. The addiction then becomes the unmet need that overshadows all others. This is not simply true when it comes to substance uh, abuse. Uh, This can be a draw to relationships, power, money, work, or any other goal that we think might fulfill one of our individual basic desires. Um, When you think of it this way, a a narrow focus can lead to significant achievements. You you look at uh, entertainment, uh, people in entertainment and um, in movies and stars of that nature, or people who do incredible athletic feats, uh, Olympic athletes, uh, that that narrow focus can lead to doing incredible, incredible things, but it can also often be at the cost of everything else that would bring them happiness. And there are those who have become too fixated on those goals that lament later all that was lost. Nevertheless, they keep chasing that objective. And no matter how much they lose, no matter how irrational their behavior becomes, they, they just have to get enough of their fix, whatever it is. Now, For some people, those pursuits don't involve the same losses that drug addiction involves. They don't have the impairments of drug use or they don't have the legal and social repercussions. And so they can actually find it even more difficult to hit that rock bottom, that moment of honest self-reflection where they realize, this is not making me happy. So when we start to make these comparisons between substance abuse that can destroy a person's health and well-being, lead them to the point that they destroy all their relationships, they lose their jobs, etc., etc. When we compare the impact of that kind of substance abuse with some of these other compulsive behaviors that society tends to reward, like workaholism uh, and the like, we, we realize that there's actually a lot of similarities as far as the motivations that are underneath it and the way the brain works to keep us coming back for more and more. And while the classic addictions that have people ending up in uh, anonymous groups of of various kinds can have a higher social cost, either obsession, either obsession is an issue of personal growth. And and it's an area where development is needed, uh, where the person actually needs to, to grow in a positive direction. As Lewis explains, we can view addiction as a branch of personality development, growing out of the residue of unmet needs and failed attempts. Uncontained anxiety and depression push us to find new sources of relief. Low self-esteem sensitizes us to opportunities for feeling masterful. The simple translation, I want anything that can help me escape this sense of worthlessness very quickly. And whether that is uh, another, uh, another hit on the joint, whether it's another drink from the bottle, or whether it's another trade that I make on Wall Street, or whatever it is that I'm doing that gives me that sense of feeling masterful over and over and escaping that worthlessness that's buried deep down, I want it, I have to have it. Can you hear the impact of shame in here? How it preys on our insecurities and hijacks our reasonable desires against us? Uh, That's very much what we covered in the previous episode. And as Lewis goes on to point out, the habits of desire that characterize addiction 
are often intermingled with habits born of anxiety and or shame. And this means whether you call yourself an addict or not, when your habits of desire are driven by shame and anxiety, there's a good chance they are similarly destructive to your personal growth. Going back to the story in Genesis, the solution here to the problem was to create a clean slate, uh, to use the ark to rescue the ones who were actually willing to change and to leave the rest to their devices. Now, instead of an ark, we have things like counseling and AA groups and treatment facilities to try to reorder our desires, to reorganize them and point them in a new direction. Or, as it turns out, there's something like ultra running. I don't know about you, but uh, running is an activity that has had varying levels of interest for me. I don't mind running. It's not something I hate like some people that I know. And at different times in my life, I've tried to pick it up and to do it on a regular basis because of its health benefits. Um, And when I actually do get out and run, I kind of enjoy it. I like the invigorating feel of the fresh air and the movement of my body. But it's something that I find far more enjoyable if I have a reason to run, like uh, finishing a, a race or more importantly, socializing with friends or even better, being rewarded with food afterwards. Mm. But beyond us normal or non-runners, people who run occasionally or don't run at all, there is another kind of runner out there. And they are a little strange. They're not like the rest of us. They don't like to run. They don't love to run. They need to run over and over again for an obscenely long time and for obscenely long distances. Take, for example, my wife, who I don't think listens to this podcast, so I can tell her story safely. I remember about 15 years ago or so when she wanted to run her first half marathon. That's 13.1 miles for those of you who are not familiar with it. And it seemed a little absurd to me, but I was supportive of her desires, obviously. Uh, So I remember driving along with her, getting a hotel, um, and then dropping her off at the starting line of the Grand Rapids Marathon in Michigan before going back to the hotel for breakfast and a nap and returned about two hours later to welcome her into the finish line. And kind soul that I was, I even took her out to Olive Garden afterwards. But that one time of racing, that wasn't enough for her. She afterwards wanted to do another one, and she wanted to do it faster. And this time, I felt like I had to give a little more effort, too. So I actually ran a half marathon with with her in Lincoln, Nebraska, which this time was quite worth it, because even though we had made plans to do the training, I got to skip most of that, thankfully, um, and just came up for the race event where there was all these people to have fun with, and the spectators who lined the streets we're actually handing out treats like hands full of jelly beans and cinnamon rolls along the route. Seriously, cinnamon rolls while running. That's how you do a race. In any case, um, after this race, I remember that Daniela took a, a brief hiatus from her more serious running. And in the last few years, she has returned to it uh, with vigor and gone completely overboard. For the first time in her life, just a few years ago, she did a marathon, which is like, you know, kind of the ultimate thing for a lot of people when it comes to running, that they say, one of these days, I want to do a marathon. Well, she did. And afterwards, I said, hey, how did it feel to finish? And she said, I don't know. 
I just kept thinking to myself, that's it? Well, it wasn't it for her. Later on, she would do a 50K. That's 31 miles in case you uh, needed to do the math. That wasn't enough. She did a a six-hour run and an eight-hour run and a 24-hour run. Yes, she ran all day and all night. And I've heard her talk at different times about doing a hundred miler. I mean, I get tired just listening to her. Honestly, her accomplishments are mind-boggling to me. Some of you listening may have similar feelings. What my wife and her ultra-running friends do seems like a superhuman feat. And because my desires are not oriented in this direction, my brain's not trained to enjoy running at this level, at times this activity seems a little bizarre to me. But they actually find happiness from doing it. Not only that, but ultra-running can truly be a life-saving behavior for some individuals. Take, for instance, Katra Corbett. For years, she struggled with addiction to meth and alcohol. Uh, This eventually led to her even serving time in prison. And when she made her way out of prison, she took up running almost immediately as a a way of kind of coping with some of life's anxieties and, and such. And she wasn't going for very long before she graduated to ultra running. Initially, as she was getting into this, she thought of herself as an addict runner. And it took time before she reimagined herself as an ultra runner. She reflects on how her, her shared love affair with ultra running helped her learn new ways of handling pain and suffering. She had a traumatic past and th- this was something that was difficult to deal with at times. The suffering and the processing of it wasn't easy. But she found in ultra running and in the community something significant for helping her deal with it. She shares this way. There's a bond you form with other people out there suffering with you. That unique suffering creates a bond that is hard to describe to people who don't run, uh, those who may run but choose not to do ultras. Many people can't relate to the kind of pain it takes to finish one of those races. The people were crazy, I'm glad that she admits that, but friendly, open, and loving in a way I had never experienced before from strangers. That's a pretty incredible testimony, is it not? The traumatic past that she had, the drug addiction, and here she is finding new ways of coping uh, by simply running miles and miles on the road. Now, in some ways, this kind of ultra running is just replacing one addiction with another for those recovering addicts. It is, after all, activating the same aspects in the brain, the same feedback loop, the same reward system, the same desires, things like that, uh, or, or at least similar desires. And there's certainly a chemical payoff from running like this. Um, But there's also more than that. As Katra's quote reveals, uh, participation in the ultra running community helped her in this process of recovery. And it helped in a couple of specific ways. First, by building social connections that were necessary to remove some of the isolation and the shame that comes with addiction. And then the personal growth that comes through identity transformation. She went from being an addict to an addict runner to an ultra runner. Now she was something that she could be proud of. And that community and that identity shaping, it's absolutely crucial to combating the isolation and shame that entices our desires down the path of addiction. Same brain mechanisms, same desires, new behavior patterns to help those desires reach true fulfillment. Of course, there, there are cautions to this. 
uh, ultra running or any other form of replacement habit that you can put uh, instead of a substance abuse uh, habit or behavior, uh, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be living healthy. You can just get addicted to new things. You can get into an unhealthy relationship with it. And she had to make that move from addict to addict runner to ultra runner. And for her and for each one of us, it it requires self-reflection, transparency, and vulnerability to make sure that the behaviors that we engage in help us overcome shame and engage desire in a productive and healthy way. But the point is this, the function of the brain is the same and it doesn't go away. The addict's brain and the normie's brain and the ultra runner's brain all function in this same way of moving from the desire to the goal that it is that we're trying to achieve to bring happiness. And so if it's not working, if it's not getting us to those goals, if if it's misaligned, if it's misdirected, if it's not working in the proper way to get us what we're actually after, then every one of us, whether we call ourselves an addict, a normie, or any other label in there, we all need to grow in how we engage it for our well-being and happiness. So where does all this leave us? Well, to answer that, let's go back to that flood story one more time. When you think about it, the evil of humanity's heart seems like a bit of a trivial reason for God to restart the planet. I mean, why should God be so concerned with that? And the other ancient Mesopotamia myths, God wasn't concerned with that. It was either being annoyed with humanity or to address the issue of overpopulation. These were the kinds of concerns that the other gods had. Of course, if you've been following along so far and listening to some of the other episodes in this podcast, you realize that Genesis is promoting a different vision of God and the universe uh, than some of its contemporary myths. This God is interested in our happiness and well-being. This God is the one who created humanity for so much more, who hoped for so much more from humanity. And later, some spiritual thinkers would even look back to see this flood story as a symbol of cleansing and freeing humanity up to pursue this happiness. That what God essentially saw was that nobody who was left who was even capable of actually fulfilling the full vision of what it meant to be human. And when God restarts with Noah as as one who could potentially bring about the vision God had seen, He brings the rainbow of promise at the end of the story as an ongoing reminder of God's high regard for us. Whatever you make of the story of the flood, this message of hopefulness for humanity is a message we all need today. To this end, I I like an amended version of the age introduction that I mentioned earlier, one that is shared in the book, Many Faces, One Voice, uh, detailing many people's story of recovery from addiction. The introduction goes like this with my name uh, placed in it. Hi, my name is Mike, and I'm a person in long-term discovery. And for me, that means that while I've been fortunate enough not to have a problem with alcohol or other drugs, I have nevertheless been blessed with discovering the miracles of recovery and what a journey that has been. Now, this is adapted from another intro that AA groups use in which they replace the words long-term discovery with the words long-term recovery. But considering our growing understanding of the brain and addiction and the universal nature and power of each of our desires, 
I think it's fair to say that it's not just those who identify as addicts that are on this process of discovery and growth, but it's each one of us, regardless of our personal history, who are learning better and better how to see our desires actually move us towards happiness. And for that, uh, we need, not unlike the restarting of the planet and the flood story, we need a certain kind of promise and assurance, a reason for hope. And that for me leads to one of the most beautiful aspects of AA groups, and that's the promises that come at the end. Here, I will read them for you in full. The AA promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And we will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And I would add just that, just this, to these wonderful promises. If we understand the true nature of our being and our desires, then we will realize these promises and this journey is not just for the ones we call addicts. Normies and ultra-athletes, business tycoons and school teachers, parents and and teenagers, this journey is for all of us. These promises are for all of us. And if... You and I, if we are painstaking about our self-discovery and development, if we are honest and vulnerable and empathetic and compassionate, we'll be amazed before we are halfway through. And we will see that God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and we'll find the happiness that is intended for all of us. Well, that's all for this time. Look for our next episode dropping in two weeks. In the meantime, I'd always love to hear from you. You can leave comments on the show's page in iTunes or on the ramada.org website. That's R-H-E-M-A-T-A dot org. Or you can email your thoughts to me at desiretodestiny at ramada.org. And if you'd like to help support the production of this podcast, you can give at www.ramada.org backslash give.